This is uh, Paul Schneiderman today on the 123rd edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio. My special guest today is University of Washington football legend Greg Lewis. Greg is currently one of the panelists on the uh, Husky Honk Show on 93.3 KJR Sports Radio. Greg, I'll get back to you in a minute. My podcast is now on YouTube, Spotify, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbeam. You can go to sportsuntoldpodcast.com. I encourage my listeners to click the like button, like button regarding my show, comment, and check out the website, sportsuntoldpodcast.com. And you can check out my show on the various outlets it's on. Greg, I'm going to get back to you now. Mr. Lewis, I gave you a much longer, longer introduction the first time around my show back in 2017, but we'll do another one today. Greg's a Husky football legend. I think you finished six in the Heisman Trophy vote back in 1990. Is that about right? Yeah, sounds about right. About right. Greg had a career with the Denver Broncos, had some success. An injury cut his career short, but Greg got some playing time, scored some touchdowns in NFL. Greg was inducted University of Washington Football Hall of Fame, the Seattle Public School Hall of Fame. The, the list, list goes on. I would say, Greg, one of all the distinctions you have in your athletic career you are now the most frequent guest on the sports untold podcast <laughs> i've even on so i'm so. moving up i'm moving on up <laughs> my 15 minutes of fame is still going <laughs> well great great always good to see you greg thanks for coming back on the sports untold podcast also on the ring Avenue radio no worries i'm glad to be here paul anytime you want to have me on and talk huskies i love the the two things i like to do talk and talk huskies so this is a, a great opportunity for me so thank you yeah, you know, we hit on all sorts of subjects, Greg. Right? Remember when you were on last year, you said, Paul, bring it on. Whatever questions you got, it's just yep. load it up, right? Well, I got um, a question from the audience. I have a, my longtime friend, Dr. John Stridel. He's a Lakeside 89 graduate. John was mm -hmm. a really good athlete in his day, and, and uh, he's, he's now my dermatologist. And John wants to know greg he wants to get your opinion if the huskies are going to cover the 22.5 point <laughs> spread tomorrow against kent state so that's dr stridel's question for you mr Wilson. well i think if the huskies defense which i think out of all the things that i'm most curious about is how they are going to perform uh this year and this week in particular uh can get some key stops uh they definitely have a great opportunity because i think this is going to be a high scoring game uh the flashes, uh, you know, they have a up-tempo, really fast-paced offense, so they're going to give us a lot of possessions. We're going to have a lot of opportunities to have the football, and um, their defense is not very stout at all, uh, the flashes, uh, Kent State, and so we're going to score a lot of points. I think the, 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 the nightmare of last year of scoring seven points the first game against a Montana team won't repeat itself. Great offensive scheme, what I've seen so far, the weapons are being utilized, those big, tall receivers. Um, I think some of the transfer running backs look really good. They got some wiggle to them, you know, make some folks miss. So I think if uh, the defense can get some key stops, slow these guys down, we'll have a great chance of covering the 23-point spread. So I, if I were a betting man, I would say cover. Okay. Okay. So I think Stridel maybe listening to it soon, if he's not listening right now. <laughs> I, I, will, I will communicate your – Sure. Um, by the way, Greg, if I look at the monitor now and then, see so if we get some comments on Facebook. So I don't want you to think that I'm ignoring you or oh, no doing a little switching to see what 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 uh, any, if we get some more questions in the audience. Oh, Greg, you know I have uh, been listening to you for years, and you were at Como for years. I think you're having what your second stint at KGR, and you're part of this really fun Husky Honks team. And the current cast is you, Dave Softy Mahler, the longtime. 
uh, KJR host. I, I know both of you reasonably well. And I and the new guy who I don't know, but I certainly know of him. Well, I'd love to get on my show at some point, Mario Bailey. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about Mario joining you guys. It's like a TV show. The cast has changed, but it's a good show that keeps going. Yeah, uh, tell, us about, yeah. tell us about Mario joining the show and maybe some of his, what, what do you think he can contribute? Well, um, as you guys know, the original Hawks had uh, Hugh Millen and Dick Baird along with Softy, and Hugh uh, took an opportunity to step away to follow his son's college football career. You know, uh, that is real prohibitive when you're doing a college football show to have sons playing because you want to be present with them. Um, so I was able to join last year after my stint with Como, uh, having uh, the broadcast rights go over to KJR. So they just kind of brought me over and it was natural because he was leaving. And then Dick Baird, who had been on the show for 20 plus years, um, just said, you know, it was time for him to step down and retire. He felt like he wanted to spend more time just being a Husky football fan and not having to deal with a lot of the stuff that goes along with being part of the broadcast team, especially when you're doing shows where fans can call in and things are going well. So I think the last couple of years was rough on him a little bit. Uh, but yeah, he, he, he earned his opportunity to step down. And so we were trying to figure out who should we bring in. And Softy's desire was a name that Husky fans would know and be familiar with um, in this newer generation. You know, um, although Mario and I, you know, are, are a little bit uh, older getting up there. Uh, Mario's a year younger than I am. But uh, the national championship team that he was on and him being the Pac-10 uh, player of the year, you know, gave him that name, that credibility and that notoriety, I think that's something he was looking for. I think what Mario does is um, brings another local sports hero who's still in the football world because he works for the Seahawks in player development um, and community development with the Seahawks. So somebody who's still connected to the game of football, played at the highest levels, understands the game, um, can give you insight from a player perspective, from a champion's perspective, being a part of the best era of Husky football, period. So he brings all of those things to the table. You know, he's um, indicated before we started the first show that he's a little nervous. I said, hey, we're just coming here talking football. I think between Mario and I, you know, we'll spend some time, you know, talking some X's and O's because we know the game from that perspective as well, but also just kind of giving folks an insight on what it's like to be on a team, a player, part of all the things that are connected to Husky football, um, the traditions, the history, the pageantry, you know, the excitement around college football itself. He has a innate knowledge having played at the highest levels and been on the pinnacle of college football. So we're excited to have him. Uh, you and Mario have been longtime friends too? We started more as rivals. You know, we went to uh, opposite Seattle public high schools and he's always quick to remind me that his senior year, that, or actually, I'm sorry, my senior year, his junior year, uh, that Franklin beat us seven to nothing. And although it was technically a tie for the Metro champs, he's claiming the Metro title because they had the head to head win over us. We both went to the state playoffs. And actually, I think we went a, a, a little bit further than they did. But he's quick to remind me of that. But I also am quick to remind him that the other three years I was there, at least, we beat Franklin and beat him rather soundly. Um, but they did bite us uh, my last year. But other than that, yeah, we've been teammates for a long time. We both grew up in the city, so we've had that kinship. And after football, we both returned back to the city of Seattle. You know, I was in Denver for about three years, and he was in the NFL for a couple of years and then played overseas for quite a long time. But ever since he's been back, you know, we've, you know, struck up our 
you know, uh, friendship and, you know, we've had an opportunity to be around each other for quite some time, him being with the Seahawks, me being with the Huskies, supporting one another, you know, getting each other tickets to the games, you know, that kind of stuff. So I would definitely consider Mario and I good friends. Well, I remember, Mario, you were two years ahead of me. I was at Roosevelt. You were at Ingram, 87. Mario was a year ahead of me. He was Franklin, 88. And I remember he was a great, he was a really good basketball player, too. So, yeah. yeah we, challenged <laughs> we were on the basketball court, although Mario was more of a, a one uh, point guard. I was a power forward, so we didn't go head up. But we definitely had some good games against Franklin in basketball. I think his junior year, uh, my senior year, we played against them twice. And we won one and they won one. So it was kind of uh 50-50 on that. You, 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 I think you give Franklin less a hard time than Roosevelt. My alma mater, you love to, you love to kid me about Roosevelt. So <laughs> well, if if I had my chance to really pick on an alma mater, it's gonna be always gonna be Blanchett. You know, the 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 the, the kids uh, that were out in the north end that were probably a little cocky, a little arrogant. They were good in both sports during my era. Right. Um, but we definitely uh, had a rivalry with Blanchett. So that's the team I love to hate. Uh, but I got a little bit left for Roosevelt, Franklin, Garfield, Ballard, whoever else. <laughs> you know, I had Joe Steele on my show. He was my 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 guest right before you. And I, I didn't kid with Joe a lot about Blanchett. I think Joe takes the Blanchett stuff pretty seriously. So. Yeah. Well, you know, at Ingram, we, we have a, a motto. It's a matter of pride. So, you know, I'm a proud Ingram Ram. I take any opportunity uh, to let folks that played at other metro schools know about successes I had against them. Uh, and in football, I've had quite a few basketball yeah you know but definitely in football um greg i mean this is something a question that 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 i'm just curious to pick your brain on you you played for the broncos for a few mm -hmm. years you play in the nfl and russell wilson as we know played 10 years for the seahawks i know you're more of a broncos fan than a seahawks fan but anyhow russell played for the seahawks for 10 years you know super bowl appearance a super bowl championship and right now, it just seems like so many people in Seahawks Nation are mad at Russell Wilson. What's your What's your take on that? It's It's business, isn't it? It absolutely is business. As a player, you find out as soon as you're not as valuable to the team as you once were. Whether it's an injury or someone at that position is you know elevated themselves above you, or you know a myriad of other things. So the business part is real. But I think from the fans' perspective, we all the folks in Seattle, and even though Seattle's not my number one team, I am a right. Seattle fan, we should appreciate Russ for everything he did while he was here in Seattle and appreciate him for the successes. And um, the, the He has the most wins, I think, for any quarterback in the history of the NFL in their first 10 years. So he did some fantastic things for his organization. We should celebrate him <clears throat> and thank him and be proud of that for Russ. Now, having said that, when he comes back in a different uniform, he's on the other team. So I don't think we should be, you know, throwing any parades and, you know, cheering him during the game. If he makes a great pass, we should boo, you know, or we should, you know, come on defense, you know, we shouldn't be rooting for Russ. So I think it's both. Let's appreciate him for what he did while he was here, but we root for our team. And if you're a real Seahawk fan, uh, which I'm not saying I am, but those in Seattle who are, you should, you know, wholeheartedly root for your team the way that you would normally root for them during the game. After the game's over, appreciate Rush again for all the things that he did here and have positive thoughts about that. But boo him or razz him or, you know, be a fan during the game. On social media, it just seems that so many Seahawks fans are just, just mm -hmm. mad at him. It, it, it seems, Greg, tell me if you kind of agree with this analogy. It seems like kind of an 
an Alex Rodriguez ish situation almost. You know, when Rodriguez signed with Texas, Maris fans were so mad back in the 2000s. I, Rodriguez had seven, eight, nine great years for Seattle. I mean, different situation, but it, it just the animosity. I don't quite get it. But yeah, I don't think any there should ever be animosity. But maybe that's why the word that recognizes people who root for a team is called a fan, short for fanatic, right. fanatical. Right. So people are fanatical about their love or hate, you know, as it relates to their team. And so people get that way. I don't, you know, buy into that, but some folks do. I just think that Russ should be always considered a Seattle icon. He should always be a favorite son of Seattle while he's playing in the NFL and playing for other teams, we should root against him, you know, and, and razz him when he's here. But once he's done playing football, he should be welcome back here with open arms as the greatest Seahawk ever, um, at, at least up until this point. And, you know, people got to get over it. I think sometimes it's more like, you know, you, you, you have a relationship, you know, with someone of the opposite sex uh, or, you know, whatever your, you know, relationship preference is, and then they break it up with you. And you're kind of upset because they broke it up with you and you don't want to see them with someone else. So I think it's sort of like that right now. But, you know, time heals all wounds. So hopefully years down the line, you know, when Russ, like I said, is ready to retire, hang it up. Uh, Seattle welcomes him back as a favorite son with open arms as the greatest Seahawk. But now Russell's kind of like the ex-husband in Seattle, I guess. So. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, thanks, Greg. I wanted to get your insights. You know, I had you on my show, last time you were on my show was back in 2021. The Huskies were two and three. And mm -hmm. I asked you if the Montana loss was an aberration or a sign that the Washington 2021 team has some major holes. I don't remember your answer specifically. But you gave kind of a nuanced answer on that. Mm -hmm. So... With that question from last year in mind, and we've talked, you know, a bunch of times since then, but we haven't, I haven't formally asked you this. I'll ask you on the air now. So Jimmy Lake got suspended later for hitting a player from behind. Um, I guess I have two questions for you right now. Was that punishment of Jimmy Lake a trumped up thing? It was pretextual in a way. Was it, you think the athletic department did it in a way to have a, another basis to maybe let Jimmy go? That's my first question. Second question is, do you think Coach Lake deserves some more time to be the UW coach? Well, I think that um, the circumstances that happened with him hitting the player in the suspension might not have been as severe had he not lost to Montana and the team hadn't been spiraling into the situation that they were not to discredit the athletic department in the saying that they were trying to, um, you know, keep on, you know, in a situation that might not have been as serious, but I think just the atmosphere and environment um, dictate a lot of things. And, you know, as a leader in an organization, you have to consider everything. Um, I believe that if it were just the, the swatting of the player with the game plan or whatever you want to call it, um, had been the only thing, then yes, I would say he would have deserved more time and more of an opportunity, but it was more than that. And, you know, not to get deeply into it, but there was certainly um, a digging into the program that the leadership of the athletic department had to do after that incident. So what it did was sort of brought the microscope. And once you bring the microscope, you know, people are going to start to find things and right. find things that may not be well. And microscopes are, are created to be able to break down the DNA. And what had happened is the DNA and or the culture of Husky football had fallen off the rails. 
and the athletic department felt like the football program's culture uh, was in a real, real deep negative tailspin that it couldn't come out of. The players, it seemingly, you know, uh, and, and obviously there's never all, but it seemed like a lot of the players, you know, had lost faith in the coaching staff and their ability to, you know, be who they were when they signed up. You know, Jimmy Lake was one of the great guys, great human being personalities. And I think the pressure of losing to Montana, all the things that were going on with COVID and not being able to right the ship in any way, shape or form, you know, kind of plummeted him into being someone that was different. And that difference created a negative culture all throughout the program. And then as an athletic director, you had to look at it from that perspective. Is there a way that Jimmy would be able to dig out of this based on the circumstances? I don't think that she felt that he could or turn it around. And instead of letting the program continue to slide into that negative space and place for more months and years before doing something about it, she decided that it wasn't going to turn around. Jimmy wasn't going to be able to get it you know, turned around. And so let's go ahead and make the move now. You know, because the Huskies weren't bad during that 2020 abbreviated pandemic mm-hmm. season. They weren't horrible. And then 2021 hit, it just seemed like things really went downhill. Yeah. So COVID created a lot of situations, circumstances that were unusual for football programs and coaching. And to come in as a first time head coach and having to deal with all of that, it impacted his ability to recruit players and impact his ability to um, probably get the coaches that he may have wanted. It just had an impact on a lot of stuff. And so going into that 2021 season, you know, you have a lot of, lot of you know, obstacles in front of you. And then to lose that game, which had never happened in a hundred years of Husky football or however long we've been at the, the top level to lose to a lower division team. Now, all of a sudden there was pressure on you that was, unbelievable I mean just and to lose in the fashion they did where they only scored seven points when there was a lot of questions already about your offensive coordinator who's this guy why are we hiring him and then for him to lay an egg like that everybody came out and you know I think too and, and and this is something that I'll say and you know folks can take it how they want I think there's more scrutiny on you as an African American head coach you know there are very few in college football and professional football and so there's already some built-in pressure and scrutiny that you're dealing with. People, you know, is, you know, he's capable, all that kind of stuff. Then to lose that game, I think that the pressure at that point is what, you know, and they as that old saying, pressure is either makes diamonds or busts pipes. Right. And I have to say, the UW football program, a few pipes got busted last year. Well, you brought up a lot there, Greg, and and I just remember that question I asked you, is this Montana State a precursor of a program in big trouble? It turns out a year later that Montana loss really, really affected the program tremendously. So. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, sort of a chicken and egg thing, though. I'm not so sure how much of problems they were in that Montana exposed or if Montana's loss actually caused a lot of the ensuing problems. I would say more the latter because I think um, – not if you had won that found a way to win that game and and you know let's face it the Huskies could have won that game there's several other games in the year they could have won you know a few things go differently here and there they could have pulled that game out I think the season would have went a lot different you know I don't know I'm not saying they would have been Rose Bowl champions or anything but I think Jimmy Lake could have continued to be who he is the plan could continue to be executed the scrutiny wouldn't be as tough and, you know, you may come out with a six, seven, eight win season, maybe, you know, 
But um, I do think that that loss precipitated things changing, abandoning the plan, panicking, all of those things, which, you know, is never good. <laughs> Greg, are you hearing anything where Coach Lake could end up? Are you are you hearing anything behind the scenes? Could he get maybe a coordinator position somewhere? Or are you? What are you, are you I, I haven't heard anything. I think he's probably, you know, going to lay low for a while. He's, you know, fortunately, um, college football right now is, is a lucrative endeavor. So I think that him and his family would be okay financially for a while um, and should have, um, you know, no problems with that part of his life. I think it'll give him an opportunity to sort of reflect, um, rethink who he is, how does he get back to the Jimmy Lake previous to those issues, and then, um, you know, find some folks who believe in him and trust in him and know who he is and have been a part of his you know, career that'll give him that opportunity to get back in it if that's what he wants. But I think deep down inside, he's a good football coach. Um, you know, there's always that can a good assistant become a good head coach? Right. Still, I'm not saying he couldn't, you know, maybe he could, but I think at least he showed how great of a position coach and a really good defensive coordinator that he is. Right, right. Well, what do you, this new coach, Caleb, I always mispronounce Caleb's name. Caleb like DeBauer, DeBoer, DeBoer. Caleb DeBoer. DeBoer, DeBoer. Okay. So, Caleb, what do you think of uh, Caleb as a new coach, Greg? And um, put on the Greg Lewis crystal ball. Do you see Caleb as maybe having a six year or so run as a coach like Chris Peterson? Can you see him having a really long run like Don James? Tell us what you think of the hiring and put on your crystal ball. What, what do you see happening okay. with Caleb's tenure at University of Washington? Not to correct you, but it's Kaylin with an N, not B. Kaylin DeBoer. Oh, Kaylin. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, and, and if you're saying that, I apologize, but uh, I, it sounded like you're saying Caleb. But no, Kaylin. I think I did say Caleb, yeah. my bad. So Coach DeBoer, it, to me, is, uh, you know, sort of that what you would think of a football coach is. He's a guy who loves the game of football, who um, played, you know, as a young person you know, wasn't super physically talented, but was good enough to play at a lower division of college football and had a lot of success, wasn't able to extend his career to be a professional, but loved the game of football. So got into coaching, you know, someone who, you know, like I said, did it the hard way by hard work, uh, by studying, by, you know, knowing his assignments. And those are things that, you know, usually translate into being a good coach and his, um, I think, resume you know, shows that he's had success at every level he's coached at, and including last year, Division One level, maybe in a smaller conference, but he had some success against some really good teams. As a matter of fact, last year, you know, they were one fumble late in the game by the quarterback away from beating Oregon, right, um, right. a highly ranked Oregon team that had beat Ohio State. So that kind of tells you, you know, how he's, you know, poised and, and can coach at this particular level. So what I see is um, a few things I think will determine how long his tenure here is at the University of Washington. Some of it's tied back to this whole conference realignment thing. I, I you know, I, I have some fears, you know, not irrationally. And, and I, I know University of Washington ultimately should be okay because of our history and our success and what I believe the athletic department will do to fortify us as a, you know, player in big time college football. But if for some reason we were to, you know, slip a little bit and not, you know, stay at the, you know, power three or two level, which is what it seems like it's going to. Um, you can see a coach like DeBoer having some success, but wanting to be at that level. And if we're not there, you know, perhaps, you know, finding a team or being at least, you know, recruited away 
from one of those programs, if indeed that's the case. If we are continuing to play big boy football and be in the conference alignments that can you know, compete for national championships, uh, which I hope and assume that we should be, um, then I could see him having a long tenure here. I think the way the whole conference alignment thing will go with you know two or three conferences, you'll see a little more stability and, and programs wanting to hold on to uh, coaches that have proven themselves and are good and doing uh, playing well. Coach DeBoer, I think he's a little younger than I am, so age certainly shouldn't be a factor in you know how long he stays. I think Coach DeBoer will end up being a Husky for quite some time as long as this program continues to invest in football, be successful in football, and play at the highest levels. Well, I'm going to ask you some more about the conference uh, mm -hmm. Pac-12 future issues. And, you know, one thing I like with this new coach, Craig, is it strikes me as a guy who's willing to learn from others. Mm -hmm. And he just strikes, he sort of brings that sort of Midwestern folksiness, I guess we can call it. But he strikes me as a guy who's reaching out to a lot of the alums. And I hear he's talking to a lot of, like Coach Peterson. It strikes me as a guy who's trying to take a lot in and admits he doesn't have all the answers. That's something I picked up on the guy. Well, I certainly think uh, Coach in his, you know, tenure, he mentioned the other day that he's learned from a lot of other really good coaches and, and, and people throughout his career. Um, you know, he's had the opportunity to coach around some other greats and then to be here having Coach Peterson still connected to the program, it would make sense to, you know, leverage that and, you know, get, glean as much as you can from him. But while at the same time, still knowing who you are, how you do things, and knowing that you've had a lot of success already. So you pick up a few things here and there. And I think he's certainly humble enough um, to, you know, be willing to glean what he can from others, whether it's strictly X's and O's or it's a culture environment or how you do things, all of that. So I, I've appreciated how open he's been with former players. And most coaches usually are. You, you very rarely find a coach that comes into a new program and wants to, you know, exclude folks from the past and, and not dip into that tradition, especially one that has a tradition like the University of Washington. So most coaches that I've encountered throughout the years have been open to having former players. He may have, he may be doing a little more just to make sure that folks feel welcome and are around and doing things. So, you know, I applaud that part. Um, and again, yes, if there are people like Coach Peterson around, you know, that you can learn from, uh, I, I would I would think that his humility has allowed him to do that. Well, you seem pretty optimistic that Caleb could be a guy who could be in the program for a long time. I, I liked hearing your your general optimism that he could be a, a, a guy who could have a long run at the University of Washington. Greg, uh, a famous Husky legend passed this year, Hugh McElhaney, and a famous running back. I remember many, many years ago, Greg, when you played with the Huskies, there was a Seattle Times article where, what do they call you? Like, he was well, the he was the king, and they called me the prince. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that article. Right, right, right. So um, did you ever get to know Hugh McElhaney? And do you think the UW should do something specific to honor him? Yeah. Um, I got to meet him a time or two. I never had an opportunity to really get to know him. I know he is – he's the king. He's the greatest football player to play at the University of Washington. He's in uh, University of Washington Hall of Fame, College Football Hall of Fame, the NFL Hall of Fame. And although I never got a chance to see him play personally, I've seen clips and, you know, during the era of football he played, he was just the best. He just was the guy. And so all respect and honor to Hugh McElhaney and, you know, just to his family uh, and friends and relatives, you know, certainly we hate to see him go. 
Um, he was a big part of our tradition and history at the University of Washington. And, you know, me being compared to him was fun. Uh, but again, you know, he was the king. <laughs> um, I think that um, the University of Washington has certainly honored him throughout the years. Like I said, he's a Hall of Fame member. He's been a Husky legend that we bring back during the third quarters um, and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, that the athletic department um, has done a good job of trying to make sure former players who have had success at higher levels have felt, you know, appreciated and honored and that sort of thing. I don't know what his connection has been to the university over the last several years. I haven't seen him around, you know, at all. And that could be just his health and, you right. know, his age and whether he gets around and travels a lot. Uh, so I'm not sure if they have anything planned, but he's certainly deserving of any honor that the University of Washington could give him. Um, I think that, um, you know, anytime we can celebrate folks who created the history here, who created the legacy here, who have been uh, honored at the highest levels, we want to recognize them because it also shines a light on our university and the type of, you know, athletes and students and people that come out of this great place that I call, you know, home, the UW. So um, any, any accolades or celebration that we do for Hugh McElhaney or might be done in the future, I think is well-deserved. Greg, I'm kind of chuckling at something McElhaney said. He said he got, he made more money at University of Washington than the NFL. So yeah, I've heard, you know, I, I, I'm not going to call names, but I, 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 I've in my, my life going to banquets and hanging out with, you know, the who's who of college football and right. running back position in particular, I've had other guys tell me, you know, I had one guy in particular, I don't say his name, but he said, man, I took a big pay cut when I left college to go to the NFL. And it wasn't until they left their first NFL team and signed their second contract, well, signed a bigger contract with a second team that they right. they said they got they caught up. But so I've heard that at more than, and, and that was a different time, right. a different era of football. And the University of Washington certainly, you know, paid some penance uh, for um, things that happened back in that era. But during that era of football, there was a lot, a lot going on. A lot going on, yeah. But he, 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 he didn't hide the ball on that too much no. many years later. And some of sure. the, the whole different era with all the name, image, likeness yeah. stuff. And but yeah. uh, whole different era now. I encourage my listeners to like, subscribe, and comment. Go to sportsintelpodcast.com. I got Husky great Greg Lewis on and current Husky football commentator at Seattle's KGR Radio on the Husky Hawk segment, Greg Lewis. Greg also does uh, part of the broadcasting, broadcasting team. Greg, you know, we're going to have some chatting about all this craziness going on with the, mm -hmm. the Pac-12 and the college conferences in general. And I remember, Greg, you and I talked, I don't remember if it was on the air, but I think we talked about this off the air, mm -hmm. about the hypotheticals of the University of Washington maybe not being the same conference as Washington State. And it just seemed kind of like one of those sports mm -hmm. junkie hypotheticals that would maybe never happen. But now it, it's reality. This stuff can yeah. really happen. So yeah. I want to get your take on um, the, the story that broke today, the possibility of the UW, Oregon, Notre Dame, and Stanford and Cal joining the Big Ten. And mm -hmm. um, give me your take on that. I got a few follow-up questions. The most, the, the best thing about college football uh, for a long time was the tradition and the history and the, you know, the rivalries. It, it was what made college football special. And that's what drove it. And I think, you know, why fans came out to the games and all that kind of stuff. What's changed is that the most important thing in college football has become money. And the reason money has become so important is in order to attract the best 17 year olds uh, to your program, 
you have to have an army of people out there finding the best 17 year olds, uh, recruiting the best 17 year olds. Um, and then you have to have the facilities and the, all the things that go along with that to, you know, stay engaged in this arm race. And that costs money. And if uh, the thing that creates, you know, unequalness in college football are the haves and the have nots with money. And so they're, you know, the Big Ten and the SEC have, you know, been unashamed about going after teams from other conferences that they feel like not necessarily just come in and, and raise the competitiveness. Yeah, that, that helps, but also brings larger TV markets and more opportunity to make money as they're negotiating these huge billion dollar television deals. And so the Big Ten, Los Angeles is a huge television market. USC has huge football history and tradition. UCLA has some tradition and history. And, you know, so you in one swoop upgrade, you know, a healthy USC, UCLA and a healthy conference probably elevates those teams. So now you, you, you brought a lot more opportunity to make money into your conference. And so that's what's driving it now. And that's why some of these traditional rivalries like Washington, Washington State aren't as important because it's all about the arms race and the arms race has to be paid for. And so that's why these things are starting to happen. And I think also college football has been, you know, a driving force for athletic departments forever. And I think there's some sentiment within college football that they feel like they're being held down a little bit by some of the other sports and programs uh, by having to feed them when they bring in all the revenues, whether that's real or not, you know, I'm just saying, I think there's a sentiment of that. And so I think there's, a, there's this down the line, college football is looking away, looking to break away from the construct the confines of, you know, the NC2A. And so how do you do that? By building uh, conferences that have all the power and the schools and having the money to be able to do it and make it happen. So I think that's kind of where we might be headed, the college football breaking outside of the NC2A construct. So, you know, that, that's a lot. And those are, you know, all things that, you know, have some moving parts and all that. But I think that, you know, it, it is very realistic that rivalries and history and tradition are no longer the driving forces in college football. It's money and television contracts and revenue. And so that's what's driving all of this realignment. And, you know, um, if you're the Big Ten, uh, the Bay Area is one of the largest markets in the country. And if Stanford and Cal football are playing well and people are um, interested in that, you bring a huge TV market. I think Washington, we're uh, Seattle area, we're either 16 or 18, depending on who you ask, television market. So, and then Oregon has some of an, what of a national following, you know, through Nike and having built that with intentional marketing and, and all of that stuff. So if you're the Big Ten and you know the SEC is going to continue to try to, you know, um, look for opportunity. You know, I've heard stuff about Clemson and, you know, and Florida State ending up in the SEC. So, you know, you got to compete. And, and, and again, that gives you the opportunity to always compete for national championships, which gives you the opportunity to always recruit the best kids. And we've seen a flux of top, top college uh, recruitable athletes, football players in particular, leave the Seattle and the Northwest and the West Coast footprint and go back East Midwest. So, you know, you don't want to have that continue to happen because ultimately it's going to impact the product. 
So if Washington Greg ended up in the Big Ten, could you live with that? If the alternative is being in a conference that's similar to the WAC or the Big West or something like that, absolutely. I think the University of Washington has played big time football for a long time. And I don't want to see us fall to, you know, where we're like a San Jose State or a, what Boise State was before all the Oklahoma, you know, victory in the bowl game and all of that into a lesser conference, playing lesser football, smaller scale, where we're one of those teams that, you know, they schedule late in the season, you know, to get an easy win or whatever. I would prefer to be in the Big Ten than to be with that. Absolutely. All day, every day. Well, you may have answered my next question. My next question I was going to ask you was, how would you feel if Washington were a newly configured Pac-12 that had schools like Fresno State and San Jose State, but it had, but but it was a, it was it geographically made sense. It was all like mostly West Coast teams. You'd still rather have us with the the, the more prominent programs in a in a conference that yeah. geo geographically is a little off. If you take that conference that you just described, yeah. And now go out in the recruiting trail and tell kids that are four and five star players that you're going to play Fresno State, San Diego State, and all of that, and that you you know you don't really have a chance to play in the national championship because we can go eleven and zero in that conference and still not get into the playoff, and tell them that um, they're going to say thanks but no thanks, and then right. it's going to create something different, which means now you're not going to be as good. So now you're in a conference that the other teams aren't that good and you're not that good. So right. you really have no chance. And so it just continues the self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't, I don't want Washington to be in that sort of scenario. I would rather travel a little bit, you know, and if we have USC, UCLA, uh, Cal and Stanford, we got four teams that we could play every year that are right here in the same footprint. So four of your games are right in that footprint. Um, and then you're going to have to travel a little bit for the, you know, some of the others, but uh, I would, you know, far prefer that than the the second scenario that was painted. Greg, one thing your colleague Softy Mahler brought up on KGR when this, when the USC UCLA story broke and they were going to be leaving the PAC 12 in a couple of years to join the big 10 Softy threw out the idea. I don't know if he was endorsed this idea, but it kind of interests me. He threw out the idea of Washington going independent for a while. How mm -hmm. would you feel about that? I mean, that could certainly work. I mean, if you do do that and you can keep the teams that you're traditionally used to playing, Washington State, Oregon, you know, the Cows, the Stanfords, to add you as a, you know, non-conference game, uh, that would work. I don't think if Cal, Stanford, Oregon um, all went to the Big Ten and we didn't, that it would be as easy. Then it would really be tough because if you, part of your thing is because you don't want to be traveling all over the country, you know, who are you going to play on the West Coast if those teams, USC won't play you, UCLA won't play you, Oregon won't play you, right. uh, Stanford won't play you, and Cal won't play you. Who are you going to play on the West Coast other than, you know, a, a few of the leftovers from the Pac-10? Again, I don't think that that bodes well. Uh, but if you're willing to travel and do that, um, it might work. But if you're willing to travel, why not just join the Big Ten? Right. Right, we'll and there was talk about Washington joining the ACC. As you said, Greg, there's so many moving parts to this. It gets kind of overwhelming and complicated. So. Yeah, you join the ACC and then two years later or four years later or whatever, you know, some of the best teams in the ACC bolt for the SEC. Then you're right back in the I situation know. you're in. And, you know, I, I would rather look for some permanency. And right now, the only 
places that look like they're in it for the long haul, permanent, you know, success are the Big Ten and the SEC. I think the big, what is the Big 12, um, you know, has some things to be thinking about and have some concern. I think the ACC uh, may be vulnerable in some ways as well, because from what I heard from the commissioner, especially the commissioner of the Big Ten, he's being aggressive and he's looking for other moves. And so if you're in a conference where it's top heavy and there are a couple of teams that are bringing in all the revenue, those are the teams that they're looking to pick off and you're vulnerable. So I think right. I would rather look for a situation that's more permanent than, you know, temporary. Yeah, a, a lot there. I mean, it's just, there, there's, it's, there's so many parts. You know, I had a guy in my show, I mentioned this to a couple other guests too. I had a sports economist in my show a few years back and Andrew Zimbalist, a professor. Mm -hmm. He's written a lot on the economics of sports. I always think what Zimbalist has advocated. Zimbalist thinks the whole NCAA should be completely dismantled and Congress should get involved and start a whole new federally chartered athletic college athletic system. Zimbalist just thinks NCAA model is not sustainable long-term. Yeah. So I do think about his sort of radical approach, just abolish the whole thing and like start a whole new constitution. That will probably never happen, but it's something that kind of fascinates me. In a yeah, I think the NC2A has moved slowly on things that they probably should have considered doing earlier and that has led to a lot of the litigation and or um, situations that create the, 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 the oddities that we see now. You know, their unwillingness to consider the um, economic plight of student athletes who were not only sacrificing a lot of, you know, their lives and time and bodies. Like I said, I tell people, whenever time I look at the 39 yard line out of Hussey Stadium going uh, towards the uh, closed end, I go, my knee's out there somewhere. I left it on right. my feet. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. But um, while we're in school, you know, we're surviving off top ramen or, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe find a girlfriend who's got a job. I mean, just any way you can figure it out. Uh, because we weren't allowed to, you know, make any money. And then the real, I guess, part that that was hard to stomach is, is and, and now especially is, it's a billion dollar industry. Billions are being made. Right. And the workforce gets nothing. And you can say, oh, they get a college scholarship. But how many student athletes are able to graduate, especially, you know, before 19... 79 go back and look how many student athletes were actually able to graduate while still playing major sports major athletics only a percentage of them and lots of them were you know getting in the situation where they had coming out with disabilities that would you know preclude them from working certain jobs in the workforce right so you can say all you want about you know you're giving them tuition you know room and board but they're generating billions of dollars and leaving with not necessarily any benefits from that long term in their lives so I think, and, and again, making coaches multimillionaires, making athletic directors millionaires, making, you know, all of these other folks millionaires. And, you know, and then, you know, again, I, I know people probably get tired of hearing me say things like that. Look at who the major uh, pieces of the workforce are who aren't getting anything and look at who those who are reaping all the benefits and rewards and what do they look like? And so, you know, there's that aspect of it too. So those are things that, for me, the NC2A was too slow to move on. And so people started to look at the inequities and say, we're going to take this to court. This is America. You can't do that. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and the NC2A is losing and they'll continue to lose in a lot of these um, litigation situations because the system isn't really fair and equitable. 
Yeah, we, Greg, we talked about some of these issues when you were on last year. You had, you had a lot of good good points on this stuff. You know, one thing, I don't know if I've talked to you about this, talked with you about this specifically. I've talked to Ed Cunningham about this, a couple other guests, is some kind of workers' compensation program where injured athletes can have benefits mm-hmm. and uh, medical care provided. You know, so that that's that would be a proposal that, that yep. sort of interests me where some system can be set up where those 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 athletes could have something similar to that kind of model that workers yeah. can have. So I think a lot of people, you know, think about that, especially from the professional sports level. But the reality is there are more college athletes that leave college football with debilitating injuries than there are professional because right. there are more, you know, student athletes at the colleges. There are more colleges than there are professional teams. Um, and no one really thinks about that. Unless you have a catastrophic like you're paralyzed or something like that while you're playing college football, none of your disabilities or injuries are covered beyond the time that you're there at that university. Right. And so um, guys, I, you know, like I said, my knee injury started at the university of Washington. Ultimately I heard it again uh, while I was with Denver, but you know, I probably would have never heard it at Denver had I not heard it at the university of Washington. It was a re-injury of a knee that was loose and was never the same after that first initial one. So um, that makes sense that we should cover student athletes and there's enough money and, you know, you know how things work. If you put money aside, you put it in something, you know, that, uh, uh, is there, you know, for when it's needed, then, you know, you can make that work. I think the greed of the NC2A, you know, has been long a part of why we have some of the, uh, lawsuits and things that are being brought out now, because it was just not a willingness to share, especially with, the folks who are making the game happen and yep. making the game great, the players. A lot of truth that. Greg, I want to talk to you about the Huskies 2022 season a bit, the Pac-12 2022 football. Um, I want to get your take on Michael Penix Jr. And mm-hmm. Greg, you watch a lot of football. You know the sport well. Um, do you see this young man being an all-conference kind of quarterback? Give us your assessment of what you see in uh, Penix Jr. so far. Really, the only um, roadblock to Penix having had a great career to this point has been injuries. I mean, this young man has had a good career in the moments that he's been able to play. He was with Indiana, for those who don't know, in the Big Ten previous. And um, Indiana, the year that he played, I believe it was eight or nine games, was like seven and one going into the game where he got hurt. And they ended up losing the game he got hurt. Um, but they hadn't had a run like that in the Big Ten in a long, long time. And he was playing phenomenal football. He played against huge opponents, Ohio State, Michigan. Um, and right. even though he didn't win some of those games, his his contribution in those games was huge. I think he had a huge 300 pass uh, and 80 and, and some yards rushing against Ohio State in a game with three touchdowns. So he's played at the highest level and had success. He's just been snake bit two years in a row. He has season ending injuries uh, before the 10 game mark. So I think that if he can stay healthy, you know, he looked like himself this spring. He looked like he was healthy. He wasn't suffering from any um, holdover, you know, uh, uh, effects from those injuries. So if he can stay healthy, I think Michael Penix gives us a great opportunity to have a successful season. And when he had his, you know, largest amount of success, Coach Kalen DeBoer was the offensive coordinator and the system that they were running is similar to what the Huskies are going to be running now. So you take a guy 
who's had success in a major power five conference, one of the best against some of the best with the coach that he had that success with and the offense that he's familiar with, um, with uh, what I think are skilled players that are really good. Um, if our offensive line this year uh, plays at the level that their talent suggests that they could, I think this offense has a great opportunity to be really, really good. They are going to have to come out and establish some kind of running game so that it's respected. You know, they've got three transfers they brought in um, right now, two of the transfers, two of the Papa and Will Nixon are probably going to be the two primary running backs that we see on Saturday. The other guys will probably get an opportunity uh, here and there because I think we're going to score a lot of points. And this game might, you know, hopefully be one that we can put away early. We'll see some of those other guys. But I think they've done what they feel like they need to do in order to be successful on the offensive side of the ball and give um, Penix, uh, I think on the receiver side, they already had the weapons. Given the offense, given the full, you know, running game and all that to go along with it, I think he's going to do fine. And, you know, we just keep our fingers crossed that he stays healthy. If he does that, I think we should have a good season. I think what Coach DeBoer did at Indiana and what Penix Jr. did at Indiana, because Indiana has a great basketball program, but historically is not known for having a, a very prominent football program. I, I mean, I I think what, Pen like I just said, I think what Penix did there and what Coach DeBoer did there as the offensive coordinator, it's impressive stuff. Yeah, they, they've had that that success and that run in a conference that, you know, plays big, big-time football. And um, he, you know, when you see Penix out on the field, you can tell that he's comfortable. He's in command. It's not too big for him. Um, he knows that um, he has the skills and the ability, and he's done it. So it's not a, a matter of if I can. It's just, you know, let's get this group together and make sure that we all are on the same page. And I think just being on the same page, I, I like our wide receiver room. I like Roma Duns. I like Jalen McMillan. I like Giles Jackson. I like Jalen Polk. I mean, there's a bunch of guys uh, out there that can catch the football. Um, you know, I think that what I've seen from Fresno State last year and their ability, you know, to run the offense uh, with uh, a, a guy who was basically a cast-off quarterback from the University of Washington um, bodes well with this coaching staff's ability to get guys uh, in the right spots, the right positions, and utilize the talent that they have. What do you see happening to Sam Heward? I think Sam, um, right now, although he's listed as the third quarterback, um, I think that they'll try to get every opportunity they can this year to get him into some live game situations um, because I think he's definitely seen as the quarterback of the future. Penix could leave at the end of this year or come back. I think if he has a modicum of success, he would want to leave because he's already had two injuries. You know, you can't keep playing for free and keep risking yourself. Right. So I think, you know, this year is about getting um, cured some live action uh, some opportunities so that he's prepared. I think I saw near the end of spring, though, and in the spring game and some this fall, the potential that this kid has. Um, I think Penix is that comfortable glove right now that the coaches can put on and go to work and know that he can get it done. Uh, but this is the year and timing where they're really going to do everything they can to get Hewer prepared because I think their expectations is that he is the future of Husky football even as early as next year and or if something were to happen this year. Now, if something did happen, Dylan Morris might be the immediate, you know, go-to, let's get him in. He's played at college football level, whatever, um, and let him take the reins. 
but again, I think if you can get Penix through this year and you can get Heward, you know, continue to learn, know this offense, get comfortable with the coaches, the receivers, you know, get reps in practice, get some live game reps. I think that next year is what they're, you know, earmarking him, but he's got to go out and do it. He's got to win the job. Greg, I read something in the Seattle Times recently, a, a, a preview article of the Huskies 2022 team, and there was a suggestion in the article that the Huskies had some strength and conditioning issues last year. The team may have not been in the greatest shape, and they're working on improving conditioning. Do you have any insights or observations on that? Well, I think everybody has their um, system, you know, when it, and when it comes to strength and conditioning, there's nuanced you know, systems and philosophies and yeah. that sort of thing. Because it seems like to me every year, every time you have a new coach come in, everybody talks about, yeah, the team's in much better shape this year. They're stronger. Certainly they had some different numbers and maybe some of the bodies look different, but sometimes that's all based on, you know, what sort of system you're running, what you think is important as a program. So for the things that Coach DeBoer and his team thinks are important, They've sculpted the athletes to, to, to look like that and to be that way, um, you know, and, and so I think some of that is system and I think some of it's hyperbole too, because, you know, I think by the end of the year last year, you had a lot of guys who going into the offseason probably weren't as enthusiastic or excited about, you know, what they were doing and what happened. And so they may have, you know, when they had that initial new coaching staffs here, heights, weights, and all that, not perform as well. And so now they got a fire lit under them and they're, you know, doing what they need to do. And these guys want to win. So they're, they're working hard. Um, and some of it, like I said, some of it may be true, but I think some of that also is, you know, every system and every, you know, coaching staff has, you know, the, the numbers and things that they think are important and they highlight those. Well, you bring up a point. I mean, any organization has a change. People are, yeah. are going to, whether it's sort of superficial or whatever, yeah. they're going to say, we're going to do this, but we're not. Yeah. So, yeah. And they're going to, and they're going to highlight the things that look better because they want you as a fans to be excited. You know, right. they're not going to come in and go, you know, we didn't get any bigger or stronger this off season. You know, we look like we did last year. People go, uh, so you got to, Hey, we're bigger, we're stronger, we're faster. We're, we're doing this better, you know, because you're trying to create that excitement, that belief from the fans, which is important. So you're not sure you believe the suggestion that the 2021 Husky team was out of shape. You're, you're not willing to go. Nah, I mean, I saw, I would go to practice. I see those kids, yeah. you know, that would be somewhat of an indictment on the kids too, right. Uh, right. that they weren't, because regardless of what your system is, if kids are doing it hard and consistently and well, they're going to be in shape. I mean, that right. just is a truth. They're going to be strong. Some people may tweak it and do it a different way. And like I said, highlight certain things over others maybe you know we're more concerned about explosiveness they're more concerned about strength we're more concerned about endurance they're more considered or concerned about size so you know some of those things might tweak the system a little bit right but you know you highlight what what's important to you greg what do you think no more divisions in the pac-12 what's what's your what's the greg lewis take on that um i i like the divisions to some degree because it um, created, you know, that whole opportunity, even if you lost the game here or there, you could still make it to the Pac-12 championship. Um, if there are no divisions, I think the scheduling should be just equal then and not, you know, you always play these teams, you miss these two teams, you know, over in the south side. So 
I would have done, I, I'm not sure how they did the scheduling, if they did any kind of rescheduling where it doesn't matter what division a team was in, you know, whether or not you play them. I think the whole USC UCLA leaving in two years sort of muddies that a little bit. Um, but I do, you know, I think it helps that the best two teams do play for the championship so that it gives the conference a better opportunity to make the playoff. But again, you know, that all depends on how those two teams do outside of that championship game anyway. So guys, you got to come in undefeated. Maybe uh, uh, if, if, if a, a, a Utah lost at Florida early in the season, you know, this week by three points on the road, but then ran the table from there, I could see them still making, you know, a playoff scenario. I'll never talk about Oregon making it, so I won't give you any 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 how that might look. Yeah, I hear. I'm not, I'm not the biggest Oregon fan either. I have some, I have some relatives in Oregon. They're just fanatics, sure. fanatic Duck yeah. fans. Um, you know, it, it it does feel like a lame duck conference right now, doesn't it, Greg? To some degree, I think so. I think it also is like if you're going to end up playing in another conference in two years, this is like your audition. You know, we have to show the Big Ten or – whoever right that we're willing to invest in football we're willing to play, you know do everything we can do to play at the highest level you're going to get a team right um that's bringing a market behind them that's watching because they're exciting they're fun and they're winning so it's almost like a two-year audition right. <laughs> you know for other conferences so i would call the lame duck per se where we're just going through the motion i think you know this is where you really got to show who you are in order to you know get that invite a different kind of lame duck situation. Yeah, I think yeah, that's how absolutely. Yeah, right, right. Well, Greg, I'm looking at some predictions of the 2022 Pac-12. Sporting News has Utah one. Let's see here, USC two or Oregon three. I mean, I'm looking at this. They have Washington. I think it's seven. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of the Huskies being picked to be the seventh best team of the 12 Pac-12 teams? In that some pundits have. Give, give me your take on that. Yeah, I think once you get past, you know, the top two or three, it can go any order. You know, it could go any order from there. I think right now, you know, being unbiased, I would have to give the nod to um, Utah, what they were able to do last year. And knowing that their consistency, same coaching staff, same system, and playing hard in those defense, which is, you know, kind of Washington's, you know, success under Don James kind of right. deal, deal um, you know, should bode well for them. USC, um, some life has come back into that program and they have talent there and they, they recruit well and they, you know, even in the down years and now they've had some great success. They got some big time transfers. They were a sleeping giant. So you got to figure USC uh, with a winning coaching staff you know, might certainly be there. Oregon's been consistent lately. They got a million five-star guys. I mean, Oregon's been recruiting the best in the Pac-10 consistently over the last five or six years. And after that, it's a toss-up. I mean, last year, the game we lost to Colorado, which, I mean, easily could have won, was a toss-up. Um, we beat Stanford, but we beat them on the last play of the game. You know, Oregon State, we could have easily won that. You know, that was, a, you know, a last-minute kind of deal. Um, Arizona was awful last year, but they had some recruiting success. Arizona State lost their best player offensively, which was their quarterback last year. Um, so all those teams, along with Washington, I think you can throw them in a hat and shake them up. I, personally, because I'm a Husky fan and I know we had way more talent on the team last year than what we showed, you know, 
Um, you know, I, I can't argue a four and eight result, but what I can say is we have way more talent on the team than that. And I think we've added to that with our quarterback situation. Um, I think our skilled players will come to play. The defense I'm a little less bullish on because, you know, we lost two great defensive backs, two guys on the corner that shut everything down. I mean, everything. What I draft picks. Yeah. yeah, two, one first round, one early second. So, you know, we're going to have to, you know, definitely wait and see on that a little bit. I think our pass rush will be better, though, which was non-existent last year. So I'm excited to see how ZTF being fully healthy, how uh, Martin, who transferred from uh, Texas A&M, having the year under his belt, you know, um, having some of the young guys getting into that part of their career where hopefully the light goes on, the bodes well. So those are some, you know, things. The safeties have been there forever. Um, Asa Turner, Cam Williams, Ty Jones. I just need them to play better. You know, they're super experienced now. Should be no excuses. So I need those guys to play better. We got Cam Bright, a linebacker who came over from Pitt, who I think is better than any full-time player we had last year because um, of the uh, injury to Ulafosio. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful on defense. Um, I'm excited about the offense. So having said that, I think I would pick Washington over that mesh of other teams. But again, we're going to have to execute on Sundays. We're going to have to, you know, show that improvement at the quarterback position in the offensive line. And the defense is going to have to come up, be timely, and, and make plays without having, you know, two guys who you know can just take away the best receivers on the other team consistently. Right. Um, but, yeah, I would, I would pick us if, 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 you know, my Husky hat picks us fourth. You know, but I, you know, I, and honestly, you can, you can see us anywhere from fourth to sixth. I think, I think when I look at the schedule, I count we should win seven games just because we're better and more talented than that. Anything above seven is a good season. So if we win eight, that means we won all the ones we should and we got one that was more of a toss-up. Uh, if we win six, then to me, that's we lost uh, one that we should have won. So I, I would put the over and under at seven and I would bet on the over at eight. <laughs> would you be disappointed if we were, say, the fifth or sixth best team if we slightly overperformed? Would you be disappointed with that? I think to some degree because I think the stakes are high right now on what our future looks like, and we got to come out and show that we right. are a, a good team, right. a viable team. We'll bring not only uh, competitiveness, uh, but we'll bring fans that want to see us play because they're excited about us. Greg, I'm chuckling for a second. I had our, I've had our friend El, Mitchell from Eldridge, Eldridge or Kazron a couple of times. And last year I asked Eldridge uh, a similar question about the pundits where they predicted the Husky basketball. Eldridge goes, Paul, who are these pundits? You keep yeah. quoting. Who are these? <laughs> Eldridge, you yeah. gave me a much less of a hard time about when I quoted <laughs> pundits than Eldridge did. Eldr Eldridge yeah. drilled me a little bit. But I, yeah. I, I know who the pundits are. I think what he was saying is they don't matter. And he's right. They don't matter. Um, I think for me, you know, I'm always an optimist to some degree. I try to be a realist as well. Uh, but I think, you know, again, seven wins should happen. And I'd be excited. If we get that eighth win, I'd be really excited. Eldred said, who are these pundits and left shy, Paul? He was, he was good. <laughs> okay. uh, Greg, maybe just one or two more questions. Is that okay? Sure. Good. Sure. Um, I'm reading that, that, that Caleb Williams, a young man who transferred from Oklahoma to USC, is getting a lot of attention, the, the quarterback. And USC has another young man, Jordan Addison, a wide receiver. The, the, those two aforementioned players are those potential Pac-12 player of the year candidates. And you have 
like Wazoo has his quarterback Cameron Ward. Why, why don't you just mention a couple couple uh, players that you think fans should should look out for and who you could see as being uh, maybe the Pac-12 player of the year? Well, you, you definitely named a couple of them over at USC. I think, you know, that team is always going to be loaded and always going to have a ton of talent. And, you know, the Caleb Williams kid coming over from Oklahoma, joining his coach. So, you know, you got to figure he knows the system and everything. And now he's still surrounded by a ton of spectacular athletes, receivers, running backs, all of that. Um, he certainly uh, would get my initial nod. Um, I think Michael Penix, you know, could potentially end up being in that race if he doesn't get hurt. Uh, so I'm excited to see what happens with him. You know, there's always a breakout guy that you don't know about or that you're not expecting right. that right. comes out of nowhere uh, or he's young and he just hasn't had his marker opportunity yet. I think this year it's more wide open for the Pac-12 than any time, you know, in a long time. You know, Oregon has had some, you know, great players uh, quarterback and running back, uh, you know, that were experienced for a while, but they're sort of restocking there. Um, I think this is just one of those years where somebody's going to come out of the woodworks that we didn't necessarily know about at the beginning of the season. Greg, we're both Huskies here. What's your take on uh, Jake Dickert as a new Washington State coach? Well, he, um, <laughs> he, he, he put a number on us in the Apple Cup. I can tell you that. I mean, that was, you know, kind of tough, but um I think he's a stabilizing force for them. You know, all the circus that they went through uh, with the previous coach and the whole vaccine, um, you know, mandate and, and all of that and his staff following his lead and, you know, really taking the state. And now he's suing them. I think they needed a calming, you know, sort of um, stability uh, in, in, in their coaching staff. And, and, and he provided that. And I think he's a confident guy. I think um, he's a good football coach and, you know, he, he can say that he's the, you know, first Washington state coach to beat the Huskies in what, a, like nine, 10 tries or something like that. So, you know, he certainly is, you know, comes in with that confidence and, you know, he's one and zero against us. So, you know, he's got to be feeling good about that. And they had a lot of drama with Mike Leach as well. So they definitely yeah. had some drama in that football program the last exactly. quite a few years. Well, great. I'm going to end on this note. Uh, anything else you want to share about the Huskies and the 2022 season and college football in general? I'm just going to give you the floor. Anything you want to share that we haven't talked about today? That... Well, I just, you know, I'm a college football fan. This is the greatest sport in the world to me. And um, this time of year, you know, my blood gets flowing. I'm always excited to do my radio show. 93.3 KJRFM, Tuesdays at 4 and three, four hours before kickoff every, every uh, football game. And then maybe about an hour after uh, just a sl shameless plug for that. No, uh, I, love it. I should have done it earlier. Mario it. No, you, you, you did, you talked about us. Um, just wanted to reiterate that. And so, you know, this is the most exciting time of year for me. I, I do have, um, as we talked about, <clears throat> you know, some concerns of where college football is going. Um, you know, some, they say change is always good. You know, and there's some things about this change, I think, that are good. But I think there are some trepidatious, you know, things going on that, you know, just and over the last 20 years, you've probably seen it become more and more of a haves versus have nots. And the haves have, and have gotten more and more and more and become bigger. And, you know, this whole Alabama, I mean, I, we haven't seen a string of just success like Alabama's having. Clemson was in there for a while, but if you take Alabama, Clemson, 
Ohio State and probably Oklahoma, let's just say, in their sort of two. I mean, the power's just rested there for so long, and it's just going to continue to be those few teams with the way things are going with NIL, transfer portal. Just think about this. I can sign with the University of Washington, play for a year, be recognized as one of the best players in the country at my position, go, uh, now I think Oklahoma, I mean, Alabama would be interested in me. Let me put my name in the transfer portal, end up at Alabama the next year and play. Right. So, you know, those are some of the things that I think are, you know, potential, you know, pitfalls or, you know, teams that set up the NIL better where they got a lot of money to play with to recruit, which is not supposed to be used for, but it certainly is being. Again, those are usually the teams that are already successful uh, that have folks, boosters and businesses that are that fanatic about their program to put that out there. So I just, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next five to 10 years in college football. Cause I think when we get into the 2030s, we're going to be, we're going to see something that looks a lot different than what we see now. Definitely a different era. Well, Greg, on a, on, a, on a humorous note, you can I think you can see I have some pictures of two deceased icons in my office here, Martin Luther King and Lou Gehrig. Mm -hmm. Like the movie Night Museum, when the, when the statues come to life and talk, I think Lou Gehrig and Martin Luther King both gave a thumbs up when you gave that plug, Greg. So <laughs> right. I, I, I think I saw Lou and MLK talk. Yeah, I appreciate uh, that, guys. <laughs> well, Greg, always fun. Thanks for your generosity and coming on today yep. for an hour. Loved it. And I'll see you soon. And I always appreciate you being a supporter of my podcast and um, great conversation. Well, thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Paul. Anytime, Greg. You take care. See you soon.